It's bad ink jam, but not as we know it. This is bad. Welcome to the Bookie Bashing Weekly Bashcast, brought to you by BookieBashing.net. This is big, looking at next week's opportunities and last week's profits. This is Bashcast episode number 133, close only counts with horseshoes and hand grenades. It is 9.25pm on Thursday, the 21st of February 2019. Coming up in tonight's Bashcast, look at a double, double delight from the other week, uh, a neck tan farce. Leads into a William Hill shop farce. And we draw parallels between Phil Ivey's case and the farce in William Hill after the break. What exactly happened in a Super Bowl prop bet? The Aussie Millions is said to have finished with a damp squid. And back to William Hill, they blame the UK's high streets on plummeting profits. All that and more coming up on the Bashcast. We had a decent goals bet tonight, really, really good. It was kind of strange. It was over 49 goals, so um, it was 4-1 to one at William Hill. And uh, I checked it earlier in the day, and it was like 5 to back, 5.5 to lay. So it wasn't hugely off, but it was off. And then I did other things. And then I looked at the spread sites. I noticed the, the spread sites. The, the spread sites, they give the evens line. Nothing else. So they'll say what they think the evens line is. It's the middle of the buy and sell line, basically. Well, over the course of the afternoon, they changed the evens line by like three and a half goals, which is really significant over 15 games. Really significant. It's a really big shift. Um, And as a result, all the predictions, like the lays for the over 2.5s are dropped on the exchange, the predictions were for more goals. Everyone was predicting more goals. However, the bookmakers, especially with boost prices, they were just static, and William Hill were static with this over 49 goals. But in fact, not even that. They boosted it from 4-1 to to 7-1 to in one of the 5-6 to p.m. boost wheel uh, things. So it was at that point it was eight to back and four point one to lay. Really, really huge bet. Of course, you have to be in William Hill in the fifteen minute window to get on that. And then, even the non-boosted price, the four to one, was decent. But the weird thing was that covered fifteen games across five fifty-five p.m. kickoffs, which half the games were, and eight p.m. kickoffs, which the other half were. But you could bet all the way up to 8pm, meaning if there were loads and loads of goals at 5.55, well, the bet was becoming unbelievably good, Evie. Um, and 
There were eight games at 5.55pm and there were 14 goals in the first half, nearly two goals per game, which is unreal. That's unheard of. And so by half-time in the 5.55pm, this over 49 goals bet was five to back and 2.3 would have been fair odds for it. So, okay, what have we got here? It's still, if you imagine a roulette wheel, okay, we're still only covering about 17 numbers, 16, 17 numbers of the of the 37 in the roulette wheel. We're still a dog for the ball to land in our number. But we're covering 16 and a half numbers on the roulette wheel board and we're being paid out at four to one so you know i'll take that any day of the week unfortunately the second half of the 555s was a bit of a damp squid squid let's call it a squid and um there were only so there were like 14 goals in the first half only 10 goals in the second half and then the 8 p.m's we've got nil nils all over the place in the second half of the 8 p.m so it doesn't look like it's going to come in that's fine if you however are one of those people that is having a bit of a moan and I, we all like to have a bit of a moan but come on <laughs> somebody said um somebody said the comment going well this isn't it well my opinion yeah actually it was just the action of having the opportunity to get on this bet means that it went well let's not be so results orientated that we are affected by the fact that it hasn't come in i mean for starters the bet was never any better than 2.3 so we were still only covering 17 of the 37 numbers on the roulette wheel you know, it was always a dog, and it looks like it's not. It's not going to come in, and that's absolutely fine. I'd rather, much rather, these bets materialised and didn't come in, than never materialised and we were forced to get lucky on negative EV bets. Because with the former, we're going to make money over the long run. We just have to focus on a long-term strategy game, and in the latter. Uh, we're not going to make money in the long run. We're, we could get lucky occasionally, but over a thousand bets, we're going to lose money. So uh, I haven't replied to the person because I know you get your expectations up, especially, you know, perhaps I could have phrased it a little bit different to everyone go and get their mortgage on this. That's just my way of saying we don't see EV like this and an opportunity like this particularly often that's all i meant by that i think i've probably phrased it a little badly <laughs> uh, because i was getting people's hopes and expectations up but it's just good that the opportunity was there as barclay puts in the 13th goal of the 8 p.m's but we need another 13 goals in 20 minutes which is unlikely across seven games not impossible but pretty unlikely so just, yeah, that's all I'm saying. It's like, I don't want to sound facetious when I say be sort of thankful that the opportunity is there. But that's what I mean. It's like I, I, I'm happy that the opportunity presented itself and it's okay that it lost. The, 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 the result, focusing on the result, if you trust the method, you don't need to worry about the result. It's like 
don't be too happy if it comes in and certainly don't be negative if it doesn't come in. Um, things that are 2.3 don't come in quite a lot of the time. It's like we've been betting on these um, sort of goals offers, sometimes up at 10 to 1 at William Hill. Well, when you're betting at 10 to 1, you could realistically go an entire season, you know, 38 different weeks without hitting it once. And that falls within a reasonable standard deviation of luck when you're betting thin value bets at 10 to 1. But over a thousand bets, it does even itself out. Um, I've actually think wasn't going to start with this today. I was going to start with the DDHH. I went skiing last week, so I missed the podcast. Well done to everyone for contributing to the tracker. Thank you very much for doing that. I'm going on one more skiing holiday next week. Do excuse me. I always have two a year. I go with the family once, and then I go with the boys once. The Team Fags skiing holiday, um, because when we all smoked, uh, we would just buy Team Fags and then share them out. But now, all these years later, nobody actually smokes on the Team Fags holiday. So, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'm going to miss one more weekend and then it's just back to normal. So... Two weeks ago was the last time I did the Bashcast, and I think I forgot to mention DDHH week. So much so, I know that there were three. There was a HH of DDHHs to talk about, uh, and I've gone through my notes, and I've only found two of them. So we'll just discuss the two of them then. First was Sergio Aguero um, in the Premier League on the 3rd of February versus Arsenal. Because it's versus Arsenal, versus supposed decent opposition Sergio Aguero was 11 to 4 DDHH in this game his lay came into 4.1 4.2 that is old school value for DDHH if you don't know what DDHH is you back the first goal scorer if he gets the second goal your odds are doubled if he gets the third goal his odds are tripled so it's easiest to think about it in terms of um, fractional odds not decimal because then you just um you either half the denominator, or if the denominator is already one, you start um, multiplying the thingy, the, the number on top. What's the number on top? The numerator. So if he was 11 to 4. If he gets double delight, he's 11 to 2. And then if he gets hat trick heaven, then he's, um, he's 11 to 2 plus 2.75. It's no easier doing it this than. <laughs> than with decimals is it so anyway uh anything there's a rule of thumb that says that anything within a 1.0 is valid it's not technically so true when you've got shorter odds you, it, it's very much dependent on the goals expectancy of the game um but i'm, I'm not massively interested in taking 1.0 gaps down at you know 3.75 4.75 is marginal at best but 3.75 4.2 is very good and that's what Aguero was against Arsenal and don't you just love him when he scores in the first minute of the game because then you're like you've got the entire rest of the game where you're going to see some profit scored in the first minute Koscielny equalised in the 11th minute but Aguero got 44 and 60 first minute goals to complete the hat-trick heaven and so that was paid out at 
2.75 times 3, which is 5.5. 8.25, there you go. 8.25 to 1. 9.25. So, yeah, uh, amazing for Sergio Aguero when he's banging so many goals in. And that was on the Sunday. On the Friday, on the following Friday, we had Aston Villa versus Sheffield United. Typically, it's much easier to get double delight um, opportunities on less high-profile games because... You know, if it's something like Liverpool versus Manchester United, I almost know I'm not going to bother looking. Just there's so many strikers. Fred's going to be ultra conservative, etc., etc. Things like Aston Villa versus Sheffield United, um, the traders can be caught unawares. And Sharp was four to one for a double delight hat trick heaven in this game. He was actually not the first person who was value. Abraham for Aston Villa. Uh, came into a little bit of value an hour before the game. It was actually in the last 20 minutes leading up to kickoff that Sharp was 4-1 to to back and 4.6 to lay. Um, I think, again, probably like Aguero, cut online, but still available in Shop leading to the off on this Friday evening. And he scored in the 11th minute, got the first goal of the game, 53rd and 62nd. And that was two hat-trick heavens in the same week, which was unheard of. Now, what was I doing on this Friday evening during this unheard of shop, DDHH? I missed him by a few minutes, but I was focusing on the horse race on the Saturday. So it was Friday night. I went over to Kidderminster, just drove in that direction um, on Friday evening, went to Betfred, picked up a pushers coupon, just a set of trebles on the pushers coupon, and next door to the Betfred there was a William Hill, it was about 8 o'clock at night, it was just after kickoff, I just missed the kickoff for the Aston Villa game, Um. Now, Fred had announced at about 7 o'clock that he was going seven places on the 340 at NAS. So this was the week of the equine flu, and we weren't sure if there was going to be any race whatsoever. But as it transpired, some Irish racing got sort of scheduled onto ITV4, ITV Racing, and there was a, how many, I think this is 24 runners, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 22 runners in the NAS 20 to, uh, 24 race. Now, Irish racing traditionally has a higher over round than UK racing, although that has improved over time. In, the, in like 2000 to 2010, the value in Irish racing was just so bad. Um, over time, it has got a little bit better, but it's still consistently worse than UK racing. If you take the starting price, the SP, of each horse in a horse race in Ireland, you will get a worse return than a horse race in the United Kingdom. So there was some concern over, firstly, we have a 
we have uh, Irish racing, so worse value. Secondly, there are more horses in the field. With these extra place fields, profit is directly related to the number of horses in the field. If there is 11 horses in the field uh, and 22 horses in the field, then on average, profit in the 22-horse field will be half of that in than the 11-horse field, simply because of the amount of money that you can get down on each horse in any given time. And then there is the ratio of the number of paid places to the number of horses in the field. So... The absolute creme de la creme, we're looking at just under half of the field being paid. Well, here it was under third of the field being paid. So those three factors were conspiring against us. But regardless, we still went ahead. There was a bit of experimentation actually going on here. We wanted to see if we could touch this race at SP essentially without making a loss. Um, we dutched every race up until this point at SP for profit. So um, I picked up my Betfred slip and then I went into the William Hill. And the shop manager or area manager, as I suspect you know, was, was behind the counter. And as always, I look over and I smile and I say, good evening, hello, it was an empty shop. How are you doing? Is it a quiet night, mate? Not much back from the guy. Sometimes people are a bit busy, you know, they've got paperwork, they've got things going on. So, okay, if he doesn't want to talk to me, I've made an effort. I've tried to be nice. I head over to the machine in the corner of the room. Now, you've no idea what machine limits are going to be. Sometimes they can freeze out immediately. Sometimes they can be very generous. A few weeks ago in South Birmingham, I was getting knocked back at SP for like £10 each way at SP. Um, other times they'll take a couple of hundred quid. It really is like a roll of the dice. Um, but when it's good, well, you've got to take advantage. The only issue with machines, which is slightly annoying, is that unless you get the desk to load the machine, the like lo like putting money in them is a time-consuming and somewhat conspicuous activity. Because you're just feeding 20s in, one after the other. Now, let's say you want to get £200 each way at SP. Even, like, on a short-priced favourite, that's not unreasonable. Well, you've got to feed in 20 £20 notes into the machine. And it makes this kind of noise. All the way through. Stand out like a sore thumb. Now... I sort of pushed my luck a little bit in this race. There were 22 horses and I got on some of the outsiders at SP. Um, and I just decided I was going to keep on feeding notes into this machine until it kicked me out. Um, and I was on about seven horses. And across the betting shop, the manager shouted at me, Excuse me, mate, what are you doing? And I sort of said, yeah, it takes ages to feed this money in. And he said, you're not arbing, are you? Whoa, that came out of nowhere. That came out of absolutely nowhere. I mean, I know I'm feeding 
money into the machine over and over again for like a period of five minutes. I think in total I had put in 500 pounds each way, so a thousand pounds, so, you know, 50, 20 pound notes going, eh, eh, but he just shouts over the shop. You're not arbing, are you? What do you say to that? Well, I'll tell you what I said to that. I said, um, what is arbing? Because it was the only thing I could think of to say. You know, what, are you gonna, <laughs> what am I going to say? Um, so I said to him, what is arbing? And he sort of paused, looked at me, didn't never looked at me in the eye. And I'm looking at him. And he says, it's too complicated to explain to you right now. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm thinking, do I recognize him? And I think I do. Four years ago, 2015, the Rugby World Cup was on. And William Hill did a shop offer called Try Again, which was insane value. Absolutely insane value. It was that you could bet on the first try scorer. And um, if he scores the first try, you win. If he scores the second try, you also win. I don't know who came up with this scheme. The problem with this is that most try scorers are double figures, which means you can put very low stakes on for very big returns. Now, there was never really very much liquidity in the first try scorer market, but actually it worked out that you could cover pretty much all of the back row and you would be in with a very decent chance of Either you're, you're getting the first try of the game or the second try of the game. And it was capped up to £500. And at the time, Sasha was being born. So um, it wasn't that convenient for me to to hit every William Hill around. And so my brother-in-law went to a few William Hills by me and sort of I bankrolled him to go in and bark over orders and he'd go and and play some bets and he bet on someone i forget who it, it was now but he bet on someone to score and they didn't score first but they scored second and he went in to collect his 500 pounds and the guy said that we're not going to pay out to you um and they made up a term and condition out of thin air they said um, it only applies to your first bet and we've seen you have lots of bets on this You've been betting on loads of people. Well, it only applies to your first bet. You're not getting the £500. Well, that was nowhere in the terms and conditions. It didn't say that anywhere. The terms and conditions just said, if you bet on somebody and they score second instead of first, you'll be paid out up to £500. So we were owed £500. Of course, my brother-in-law, you know, he, he hasn't been betting that long. He's just kind of doing what he told. So... He didn't know how to argue with the guy. Well, I'm a lot more confident. I know what my rights are. And I know that we were owed the money. I know I was owed the money. So the problem was, as far as the shop is concerned, uh, it's my brother-in-law placing the bet. So I said, well, I'll come in with you. And I went into the shop with my brother-in-law. And standing there, now, I don't want to sort of lower myself to discuss the person's appearance, other than he, he didn't really look after himself very well. He didn't do himself any favors he was kind of like this middle-aged balding guy but trying to hold on to her um a bit of a haircut um a little bit sweaty um 
didn't really look after himself very much. Didn't, you know, probably didn't eat very healthily. Didn't go to the gym. You know what I mean? Just the impression he gave off was of somebody that his physical appearance wasn't a priority to himself. Anyway, I don't, let's not be cruel, okay? Perhaps he had a condition. Probably didn't, but maybe he did. So let's not be cruel. But you can look like whatever you look like. That's up to you. But how you come across to people, that is a decision that you can make. And we went in there and um, I sort of said, hi, there's been some sort of mistake. Um, my brother-in-law's a bit nervous to argue with you, but I'm happy just to have this discussion. Um, you haven't paid out on him. And I think, you know, he's entitled to this money. And the shop manager looked at me and smiled. I remember this smile to this day. And he said, he's not getting a penny. And I said, well, why not? So because it, the, it's meant to be his first bet, he's been having loads of bets all over town, we know what he's been doing. And I said, well, it doesn't say that anywhere in the terms and conditions. And um, the shop manager, or area manager, as I suspect he was, just looked at me and went, he's not getting the money. I said, well, the annoying thing here is that I'm going to have to get in touch with William Hill Customer Services and then sort it out with them. And if I can't sort it out with that, I'm going to have to go to court on behalf of my brother-in-law and we'll get the money that way. And it's just a complete waste of everybody's time. So I suggest that you just, you know, you either show me the clause that you're talking about or you pay out. And he said he wasn't going to do it. So I said, okay. And just to sort of finish the game, I said, could you give me the contact details of customer services? And he said, no, he wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't give me the, I mean, I knew what it was. But I was just kind of like finishing the conversation with this is what I'm now going to do. He wouldn't even do me the the indignity of supplying me with an email address or a phone number with which I could raise a complaint above his head. So I did raise it with customer services and they launched an investigation with the shop manager. And there's a lot of toing and froing that went on with customer services and I was getting a little bit annoyed because time was going by and so I said I was going to initiate um, court proceedings and um, I did initiate court proceedings and actually I remember it was on the day that Sasha was born which was the World Cup final just after kickoff uh, William Hill made contact with me saying that they were going to back down from challenging the court proceedings. And if I went along to the shop, they were going to pay out. And it was no coincidence that they did this on the World Cup final day because essentially they were just, um, they were sort of playing a game where they were not paying out all the way up to the World Cup final so that there was no more tournament to take advantage of during that period of time. It certainly didn't mean that I wasn't placing any more bets during that period of time. It just meant that that particular shop had to be avoided. My memory of the entire thing was annoyance. It was frustration. They played this game with me that was entirely unnecessary. They were breaking the own, their own rules that they were putting in place. If they didn't like the offer, they should have rejected the bet or they should have changed the terms of conditions. But the way that they played it, it was um, not becoming of a high street firm in this country. It was unfair on the punter who had discovered that they had an edge. And that wasn't the punter's problem. That's the game that we're playing. We're trying to win. And we were winning within the rules, and so they were changing the rules. And they were unfairly withholding money. Pissed me off. Pissed me off on all the way up to leading to the day that my first daughter was born. So this guy, anyway, I'm looking at him in the shop in Kidderminster. And I'm like, it's him. 
It's the guy from Try Again. I haven't seen him in four years. Oh, God. And I suddenly remembered how unpleasant he was. And he'd shouted over the shop to me. I hope you're not arving, mate. He didn't come over to me. He didn't whisper it to me. He didn't say anything. He shouted over the shop. I hope you're not arving, mate. You know. I mean, if, let's say you're in a casino in America and you're card counting. Have you ever read the sort of fictional novels or seen the movies where they catch you card counting and they take you around the back and they break your fingers with a hammer? It doesn't happen. Okay, the mob rules, that never applied to advantage players. It's all fiction. What tends to happen is that um, the floor manager will come down and he'll, he'll take you to one side away from other customers, sit you down and say, look, I know what you're doing. And so I'll flat bet you. That's what I'm going to do. Flat betting meaning, you know, if you start a shoe at $100, you have to... Finish a shoe at $100. That's the deal. I, you, you've got the better of me, and so I'm going to have to put rules in place just to make sure that you don't take me to clean. I can't, I'm not going to stop you betting. You just can't change your stakes. And it's all very sympathetically and quietly done under the radar and a bit of respect to and fro in. There's no shouting right across the shop to where I'm stood on a machine, are you are being made? And here's the thing. I was betting at SP. So I wasn't arbing. Now, I was thinking about this. The fact that I wasn't arbing shouldn't be important here. Because really, if I look at the grand scheme of things, the guy was accusing me of being an unsavory customer. And I was being an unsavory customer. I was taking advantage of the um, concessionary places that they were placing, that they were having on this race. Albeit only seven places, one to five odds on a 22-horse race. It's not massive. It really wasn't absolutely massive, especially with the uh, win odds that they had at the time. The, the race was about 67.4% EV on the win. So anyway, I said, what's Arbing? And I put another 20 in because I still had one more horse to do. And when I put that 20 in, he shouted over, if you put another note into that machine... I'm going to call head office. I thought, oh, bloody hell. It was like I'd shot someone. So I was like, well, what am I going to do? I'm not going to get into an argument with this guy across the shop. I'm not going to put another £20 in and get him you know, make a fuss and everything like that. So I didn't put any more money in. I got on the last horse each way at SP that I wanted to. And then I went over to the counter and I thought, I'll just have a bit of discussion with him, you, you know. We don't need to end this as horribly as it's become. We're not enemies here. We can sort of we can resolve our dis differences. And there was a there was a goals bet on for the weekend as well that was two to one for something like over one hundred and thirty goals. It had been boosted to four to one earlier. So I wanted to go and talk to him about that. Maybe you know see if we can break down our differences. I went over and I said, um, he said, you like the horses, do you? And I went, yeah, yeah, I like the horses. Betting a lot on that race, are you? I'll tell you what, you want to be careful, mate. And I went, what do you mean? He was like, People come in here, they, they, they start arbing the horses, they get their bets restricted, right? You want to be careful. It was so threatening. You want to be careful. What, what are you saying? And I couldn't help myself. I should have been better than this. But I said, well, that can't be me. 
because look, I'm betting at starting price, and you can't you can't do arbitrage when you don't know the odds that you're betting at. Arbitrage is the fine margins between backing at odds and laying at a slightly lower incremental odds. I can't do that betting at SP. To which he replied, You want to be careful, mate. He was so angry. But he was also licking his lips angry. He wanted to get me. Completely, all these memories that I had of him, of the how horrible he was during the try again, came flooding back. So I said to him... Trying to change the subject completely. Is that offer on the goals still 2 to 1? I know it was 4 to 1 earlier. To which he replied, People get their bets restricted. You want to be careful. You really want to be careful. And I thought, I'm not going to get through to this guy. I'm really not going to get through to He wants to... He's caught a, he's caught a, a big whale. Well, a whale is the wrong terminology. A whale is somebody that splashes a lot of cash around and doesn't know what they're doing. But he's, he's, he's caught a big advantage player in his eyes. And I can't sway him. I can't sway the conversation away from his gleaming eyes saying that he's threatening, threatening me that I'm going to get myself restricted. And so I couldn't change the conversation. So I just went, okay, no problem. I left the shop got in the car, decided I'm not going to go back to that shop in Kidminster for some time. Couldn't let it go in my mind. It was like I'd done something seriously wrong. And then I look back and I realise I haven't done anything wrong. I've gone up to the machine. The machine is the one that sort of states the limits. This guy's watching me. He's taken a dislike to me and sort of treated me like Phil from the bottom of his shoe. But what is the big problem here? In Las Vegas, going back to this example of the casinos in Las Vegas and how differently they treat people. You go up to the sports book in Las Vegas, you sit down at a table, they give you an iPad, they allow you to study the form. They'll supply you with drinks, not a shitty little coffee in a plastic cup, but they'll supply you with drinks. And when you go to the counter, some of the some of the sports books in the casinos in the strip, they'll say something like minimum bet $50 or $100. Because they want to take some action and they're not around to take your $1 and $2 bets. Whereas this guy, I mean, I'm betting at SP, he's accusing me of arbitrage, which is just, I'm trying to explain to him how it isn't arbitrage. He's not listening to me. He desperately wants, desperately wants to ban me and to restrict my bets because this is his entire world. But it left me feeling that I was a criminal, like I'd done something wrong. When I had a shower that evening, I had like this huge... So I went through the incident over and over about how I could have acted differently or what I could have said. And in reality, there's not much I could have said or could have done that would have changed his opinion of me or what I was doing. So I went to bed that night and I put on a podcast, a non-gambling podcast just to take my mind off it and it is a podcast called Monster, it's really good, which is about the the BTK Zodiac killer from the 1960s and the 1970s and as part of this podcast series, the Zodiac killer taunts the newspapers um, and the police with messages about the victims that he's killed. And it put it into perspective a little bit, listening to this podcast, 
that the crime that I did of going into a William Hill shop in Kidderminster, going up to a machine, feeding it with some notes and betting on some horses in SP sort of pales into insignificance when compared against the Zodiac Killer. Have a listen to what he did here. This is the Zodiac speaking. Like I have always said, I'm crap proof. If the Blue Meanies are ever going to catch me, they had best get off their fat asses and do something. Because the longer they fiddle and fart around, the more slaves I will collect for my afterlife. I do have to give them credit for stumbling across my riverside activity, but they are only finding the easy ones. There are a hell of a lot more down there. The reason I'm writing to the Times is this. They don't bury me on the back pages like some of the others. San Francisco Police Department, zero. Zodiac, 17 plus. And weirdly, I felt a little bit better. No offense to any um, Zodiac victims or families of victims out there. 50 years later on the other side of the pond. But like it puts it into perspective that this guy's perception of me, my criminality... Um, and then you think about what real criminality is in the entire world. It just goes to prove how far down the line we've gone with negativity towards advantage players, winning players, restrictions in this country. We're meant to be ahead of the game in the gambling industry in the UK. Certainly ahead of the game, ahead of like America and places like that. But if this is where we've got to where pretty much anybody sort of betting out of the ordinary, not betting on accumulators that can't be beaten and so forth and so on, and with the with small stakes, so mass market small stakes, but anybody betting out of the ordinary is viewed with such negative suspicion. Well, wh- where is the future? Where is this going to end? So bear this in mind, and I'm going to make a leap here in the agenda but it, I have a sort of synopsis that is all going to tie in at the end of this. Um, let's, for a moment, move from Kidderminster, uh, the William Hill, on the Friday night, and the the money that I had lost in that machine. And by the way, in the end... Let's not be results orientated, but in the end, out of those nine horses, three were non-runners. So I was on six horses in a 19-horse race, and five lost and one placed. So if we want to be results orientated, I was negative 700 at the end of that race, uh, with just 300 to go back and collect from William Hill. But let's leave William Hill and Kidderminster for one second. Um, via Crockford's the casino for high-stakes gamblers in London. Let's head over to Nevada. Um, Now, if you remember, we haven't discussed it in a while, but we've discussed it in three or four different bash casts. The Phil Ivey edge-sorting case is still ongoing. So this is um, where Phil Ivey and a Chinese colleague or friend of his um, went into casinos both in America, Europe, UK... Um, and they played Baccarat, uh, and they played it with an edge. They knew 
what certain ranges of cards were based on the patterns on the back of those cards. A technique known as edge sorting. And they got caught doing it. Now, they made money from Bogata. Bogata paid them a lot. $10 million, in fact. They went to Crockford's in London. Ivy won a lot there, but they didn't pay him. So Ivy went to court, to the European court, and he lost his case. It was deemed that he was cheating. And as such, Crockford's in London did not have to pay him. This was an awful precedence for the UK courts and the European courts to set because I didn't think he was cheating. He didn't do anything out of the rules. He didn't use any mechanical objects or any inside knowledge or anything like that. He just used his own wits and um, shame on Crockford for not realising how he was beating them. Well, back to Borgata. There was a, there's now a long-running court battle between Borgata Casino, which is in Atlantic City, and Phil Ivey. And it continued in intensity as Borgata is now requesting permission from the federal court to register the judgment in Nevada, where they claim that Ivy has substantial assets, approximately $100 million. By the way, $100 million in assets, way to go for somebody that is a professional gambler. The motion comes after a New Jersey District Court judge, Noel Hillman, denied Ivy's motion to stay to stay enforcement of the judgment and said that he would be able to pursue further appeals only after he pays back the money he won from Borgata. As per the motion filed by Borgata attorney Jeremy Klausner, defendant Ivy has substantial assets in Nevada. This is where he lives and this is where his business is based. In contrast, he has no identifiable assets in New Jersey. Given the foregoing, Borgata satisfies the mere showing that the defendant has substantial property in the other district and insufficient property in the rendering district. As a result, good cause is shown and Borgata should be permitted to register this court's ruling in the district of Nevada. So what they're saying here is that he doesn't... They want to register the ruling in the district of Nevada so that they can go after the assets that he has in Nevada, presumably his house or his holdings, which are approximately estimated at $100 million. Now, Borgata lost money to Ivy years and years and years ago. Six years ago, in fact, was when Ivy and his female companion Chung Yin Sun won $9.6 million. Um, during the same period, Ivy and his companion won £7.7 .7 million at Crockford's Casino using the same technique, but the casino declined to pay it. Um, the, and Ivy lost his case in the UK High Court. The court judged that edge sorting was cheating for the purpose of civil law. He took the matter to the British Supreme Court, but the court ruled in the favour of the casino. And that's why the American Borgata Casino then sued Ivy and his partner, even though they had paid out to him. And this is setting in motion worldwide precedents for how bookmakers and casinos are going to view advantage players. And they're actually using the 
judgment from UK high courts as the precedence. And this is the line that I don't like that we're going down. You see, the high courts in the UK had the same opinion of Ivy as the area manager from the William Hill shop that I walked into, where they looked at Ivy and they looked at me, slightly different levels we were betting at with my £1,000 that I put in the machine and his £10 million that he won, but it's the same level of suspicion and level of dislike where they're saying, you know what, the guy's using a technique that is unacceptable. They're going to end up winning money from the casino or the bookmaker. And let's just shut them down. And not just shut them down, but let's deny them payment. And if we have paid them anything, let's recoup that payment. When I went into a different William Hill, into a machine to get the money back from the non-runners, I put the slips into the machine. And you can normally bet on any machine in William Hill and you can go to another shop and then scan the codes and then those bets, those paid out bets will be accepted in another shop in another machine. Well, the machine locked up with an error code. So I went to the counter and asked what was going on. And apparently I have to return to the original shop in Kidderminster and get permission from the manager to get just my money back from the non-runners. Look, that's my money. These are horses that I bet on that didn't run in the race. But the shop manager has now put a lock on them and forced me to go and have a conversation with him and God knows what he's going to say there so that I can get my money back. Now, if you're ever interested in a seven-hour-long poker advantage play podcast i recommend poker fraud alert the weekly podcast or at least it was weekly before he was ill by todd Wattellis, who went by the poker nickname dan druff and he was talking about this borgata case with a lawyer uh, last week and i've got a snippet here but essentially they're discussing how the precedence towards advantage players in the UK high uh, courts is really going to have ripples all the way around the world. Uh, you know, most people know that Jamie Gold, for example, went into his own personal bankruptcy. Um, maybe, I think, five or six years ago at this point. But he had filed Chapter 7, and he was broke, and it was a wipeout. And he had a substantial amount of debt, and that was all discharged and you know wiped away. Now... I think it try to do the same thing, except I, and I have to read the actual judgment. But if that judgment's for fraud, even civil fraud, I mean, forget criminal fraudulent activity, just your plain garden variety civil fraud, uh, that's something in the bankruptcy world that's called non dischargeable, which means that debts for fraud survive bankruptcy. So you can't even get out of it that way. Because a lot of people would just do that. They, they take a bunch of big losses, they've got markers, well, markers like bounce checks, but. You know, other debts, uh, judgments against them, and they, they file bankruptcy and they get a fresh start and life goes on. But Phil can't do that if the judgment's for fraud, which I think it is. And the other thing I think it's important to kind of note, and it bothers me too, is that this stems from the British courts. And the Borgata would never consider this unless England, you know, the, the UK entered the decision the way they did. And so they just decided to go for it. Uh, based on that precedent, it's exactly what I was afraid was going to happen. Um, it, it, and I think you're going to start to see Nevada casinos starting to do the same thing. 
Yeah, that, I was I was wondering if that's ever going to come, and it, it's it's a very bothersome precedent. And you know the the smaller time advantage player who who gets the casino for five hundred bucks isn't going to have to worry. But but you know people who who maybe win you know ten thousand or more, uh, they they this could start to be a concern if the casino thinks they've got an angle to, to where they they can get the money back, and also because uh, if if they start to become successful doing these things, then it'll scare other advantage players from even trying so it's a, it is a very disturbing precedent that they got set and yeah that's this did follow the one in the uk and the Borgata said okay oh, yeah, he beat us the same way we already paid him but let's take a shot let's, let's see if we can get the money back and i really thought at that time I, at the time i thought they were going to lose at the Borgata, even though they crockford's had won i said well that's the uk it's totally different over there Laws are different. I can't picture a U.S. court awarding the Borgata the money here. I mean, they, they, they can definitely prove Ivy wasn't cheating. It, it, it seems so clear to me, but nope. In fact, New Jersey, they seemed to be an advantage player-friendly state because you they're not even allowed to kick out card counters. Even if you, you can sit down at a blackjack table in Atlantic City and announce, hey, I'm going to count cards. And while they can take certain measures to make it tougher on you to do, like they can shuffle the deck when it gets through you know, half the cards and things like that, they cannot kick you out. They can't. In fact, they have gaming enforcement agents on premises that they're required to have by law. And if they att- attempt to kick you out for that, you say, let me see the gaming enforcement uh, agent. And you tell them and they'll say, nope, can't kick you out. So they don't even try. So I've actually, when I was in Atlantic City, around like like a decade ago, I was playing blackjack, and they'd uh, they'd shuffle up on me because they 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 saw I was counting cards, so they just shuffle up on me, and then they put the cut card in the middle of the six decks. So because the, the advantage in card counting in blackjack comes at the end before they shuffle, so if they cut off half the half the six decks, then you don't really have an edge anymore. So what did I do? Did I leave? No, I just walked over to the other side of the casino and played those tables. And it took a while for them to catch on. So, like, there's no way I would have ever done that in a Vegas casino being caught counting cards. But in, in New Jersey, I knew I could because the worst that would happen is they'd shuffle up on me again. I knew they could not kick me out. So where do we go from here? Well, I don't know. Where do I? Well, I have to go to Kidderminster. I have to go and have a conversation with a man. The last time I had a conversation with him, all those years ago, it didn't end well. And I had to go to court to get my money. And if I have to go to court to get my money this time around, so be it. Um, I've lost count of the number of times I've taken bookmakers to court, but I can tell you what my record is. It's 100%. So do I need to make that clear to him before I go any further? I don't know. But where do we go? As my friend John would say, the only place that all of us are going right now is hell in a handcart. That is enough for the first half, guys. You're listening to the Bashcast, and it's brought to you by BuckyBashing.net. Oh, you're just the same as I used to know. Always playing games in the strangest ways. And you come and go, go, go. Always playing games in the strangest 
Welcome back to the Bashcast. That was Old Friend by Elderbrook, MK Remix, 2019. In the bookie bashing news, um, need to talk about a bet, a prop bet in the Super Bowl. So, in the Super Bowl, you can bet on... Standard things, money line and over under points and things that are shaped within an inch of their life. And it's very difficult to get an edge in the Super Bowl, especially in the big lines. Like, um, I, I would never think that I could get an edge in the money line, the over under points or any of the main markets. And the reason for that is professional syndicates really smart money shaping those lines to within an inch of their life using all the analytics and the power of millions of dollars um and it's one of those problems that is so difficult to solve that you know there are easier fish out there is what i'm saying um now i do absorb a lot of information and in three different sources so there was a magazine article that first tipped me off. And then Todd Wattellis up from Poker Fraud Alert from before the break was the second person to mention it. And then Neil Channing of Betting Emporium was the third person to mention it. And it was an edge in the strangest market I think I've ever bet on. To honor America. 
perform our national anthem, please welcome home eight-time Grammy winner, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, the Empress of Soul, Gladys Knight. It was the length of the national anthem as sung by Gladys Knight off of The Pips. So, what do I know about the length of the national anthem sung by Gladys Knight off of The Pips? Not a lot, but what I was reading was that the under, when the line was set at one minute, about one minute 49.5 up to one minute 50, somewhere around there. And the under seemed to be very popular with people, suggesting that historically it was normally under that. When people just sang the national anthem at the usual tempo, it was under one minute and 49.5 seconds. So the under... There was a lot of smart money coming in for the under, but it got a bit weird. So William Hill had the under at evens uh, three days before before the Super Bowl. Paddy had the under at four to six. Skybet had ten to eleven. Um, the average national anthem over the last forty Super Bowls was one hundred and six seconds. Men always tended to sing longer than women. And whilst the average had been rising, Gladys Knight was old school and was assumed to just crack on with it. So the smart money was saying put all of this together and it suggests that Gladys Knight is going to sing the national anthem in less than one minute, 49.5 seconds. So I had a little bit on the under. And then by the time we got to the Super Bowl, I wasn't happy because the under was now up at two to one. In fact, you get, I think, in places just a little bit over two to one, like nine to four was available. So I don't like to see that. If I'm placing a bet, a barometer of whether the bet was decent or not is that money goes in the same direction as me and the odds shorten and if the odds lengthen it means that money is opposing my opinion and that tends to be a bad thing for overall profits but anyway it doesn't mean that i've lost the bet it just means that i have a contrary view along with a few other advantage players um to the general consensus so the only thing about this bet is you might think, well, when is the finishing line for the end of the national anthem? They say the line is at 109.5, but when does the national anthem end? And if you look at the notes, the rule book for each of the sports books, The song is determined to have finished at the end of Gladys Knight saying the very last brave of the very last line. So, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And when she finishes the brave, the song's over. Even if the music continues going for for so, so long or there's a choir or whatever, it's Gladys Knight finishing the word brave 
finishes the song. So I had my um, stopwatch going. Now, let's just fast forward. There's, not, there's no need to have the entire performance here. Let's fast forward about 1 minute 40 in and see um, see if you can hear the problem that we have with this bet. So here we are. I think this is about 10 seconds to go, okay? Uh-oh. <laughs> do you hear the problem there? Did you Let's do that again. Okay? So the rules say that the song finishes when she finishes the word brave for the very first time. For the very first time. So it is the land of the free and the home of the brave. That is the last line of the national anthem. Now, let's be clear on the rules here. The rules state that the song finishes when she finishes the word brave for the first time. Okay, so she she could go brave, 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 but it's only that first brave that counts. The issue here is that she seemed to go the home of the brave, and then was a pause. And then went, hey, 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 hey. And then another pause and then went back to the beginning of the word and went, brave, like that. When, wait a minute, when is she finishing the first rendition of the brave? And actually it's all important because when she goes bray and stops, that's under one minute 49.5. But then she seems to continue and goes, ave, like she's finishing the brave. Like that, that pause and then Ave, that takes us over 1 minute 49.5 into 1 minute 50.5, which is closer to the evens line come the Super Bowl kickoff. And then there's another pause, and I'm pretty sure the third Brave is a new Brave. So I think there's two pauses. The very the second pause, what happens after that is inconsequential because I think she started the word brave for the second time. It all comes down to does she go bray, pause, and then finish the ave, or does she go bray, pause, and then start the word brave again? If so, why would she do that? Why would she go bray and then start the word brave again? You tell me. I'm just gonna play it one more time. What do you reckon? And If she's finished the word brave in the first pause and is simply repeating it uh, after that, I've won my bet. 
If, however, she's not finished and she's just going for air, and then she comes back in to finish the ave of brave, then I've lost my bet. And it comes down to the definition of this. So I'm like, is that a breath? Or is that the repetition of the word again? Because my bet hinges on exactly that. And all the way through to the next morning, I was refreshing my balance. And I had no idea if I was going to win the bet or not. As it is transcribed, the bookmaker that I was betting with paid out on both sides. They couldn't make a decision and they had decided that they had taken so little money that they could take the hit because it wasn't fair on the punter either way. But there are definitely, I heard that there were bookmakers out there that only paid on one side. And not only that, there were some bookmakers that paid on the under and some bookmakers that paid on the over. And it tends to lead you to think that the bookmakers were in a position where they could choose to pay out on the side of the bet, which would have cost them the least amount of money. Or do I just not have enough faith in humanity? What else is in the bookie bashing news? Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. Um, Aussie Millions update. The Aussie Millions is a poker tournament over in one of the more ridiculous casinos in the world in Melbourne. In Sydney, I was over in the Aussie Millions and wanted to play it, but I had one massive problem when I was over there, and that was jet lag. <laughs> I was there. I was actually. I wasn't there for the Aussie Millions itself. I was there for my friend Russell's wedding in near Melbourne, and I went down to the casino and I had the opportunity to play it, but I was falling asleep. I was really bad jet lag. I'd only flown in for like. 10 days. So I played a side event, which I played just terrible poker at, just to see what my mental dexterity was, and then decided I wasn't going to play the Aussie Millions because I'm not going to put up 10,000 Aussie dollars when I can't put two and two together. But anyway, it was won this year by... Bryn Kenny, and there's a report here, quite a good report on calvinair.com, which is an excellent resource for gambling news. But there was drama at the Aussie Millions this year. And I don't like this. I don't like this direction that this is going in. It's happened before, but okay. So, Bryn Kenny is a professional poker player. And he won the main event of the Aussie Millions, the $10,000 Aussie Millions this year. However, the problem here is that Kenny bought his way to the title. So with three players left, there was Henriksen, who had $15 million, Kenny, who had $4.87 million, and Del Vecchio, who had $4.83 million. So Henriksen has like over half of the chips in play. Uh, and then they decided that they were going to do a deal. And the three sat down and negotiated a deal, which is, you know, fine. Most people don't want to play for the amount of money that is affected by finishing first, second, third, fourth in a tournament this big. But Kenny didn't just want 
the most amount of money, despite the fact that he had less than half the chips of Hendrickson, he also wanted the title. He didn't. He hadn't knocked out a single person in the final table. He had the second amount of chips. He didn't have the chip lead. But in the negotiations, he wanted the title. And this is not a good precedence. But knowing that he was probably the best player of the three of them left, the other two, Hinrichsen and Del Vecchio, they allowed him to have it. So Kenny walked away with $923,269, which was about $300 more than Del Vecchio, and $130,000 more than Hinrichsen. Kenny also got the title um, uh, of Aussie millions main event winner when he hadn't knocked anyone out he wasn't ahead in chips and he had no right to have that so essentially he's bought the title so like imagine you're a millionaire or a billionaire and you enter your local tournament and there's like 100 people left and then you turn around to the 100 people that are left and you say you know what everyone can have ten thousand dollars if i can have the trophy well, you've bought the trophy in that case. And then you can go around saying, well, I'm the local casino main event winner when you're nothing of the sort. What you are is some rich guy who can afford to give up a little bit of equity and buy a title from people. And so this trend of people going into poker tournaments, negotiating a deal, and some people negotiating the title when they never had the chip lead is something that irks me doesn't sit very well on me at all now william hill are in the news they blame the uk high street apparently as annual profits plunge it's not just retailers struggling with the declining footfall on uk high streets bookmaker william hill is also seeing a big shift away from its high street stores Bookmaker William Hill PLC is to remodel its in-store offering as it blamed declining footfall on Britain's high streets for a 15% slump in annual profits, proactive investors report this week. As with shopping, gambling is becoming increasingly popular online, while regulatory changes such as new limits on fixed odds betting terminals have also dented betting shops' profits. I wonder if I'd walked into Kidderminster and stuck the same thousand pounds in the fixed odds betting terminal if I would have had the same reaction from Mr. Slimy Area Manager that I actually had. Without giving any exact figures, profits in William Hill's retail division fell year on year, challenged by wider high street conditions. The online business produced a good underlying performance, although new customer checks aimed at protecting problem gamblers weighed on profitability. As a result... Adjusted operating plunged to $234 million in 2018 from $291 million in a year earlier. Given the struggles at home, UK bookmakers have been looking abroad for growth opportunities and a pivotal, a pivotal decision by US lawmakers last year opened the door to a huge new market. On the back of that, William Hill made its biggest move yet into the potentially very lucrative US market by partnering up with multi-billion dollar casino chain Eldorado Results. As part of the alliance, William Hill has opened sports books in a handful of Eldorado's 21 properties across three states with more set to follow in the coming months 
Bosses said they had seen excellent growth in the existing US business, which excluding significant expansion costs broadly broke even last year. William Hill is also looking to build a presence in Europe and it launched a £240 million bid for Swedish digital gaming company Mr Green at the end of October. The company confirmed this morning that 92% of Mr Green's shareholders had accepted its offers. Those who hadn't yet accepted have until the end of the month to do so, although William Hill is calling for a compulsory acquisition of the remaining shares. 2018 was a pivotal year for both William Hill and the wider industry, said Chief Executive Philip Bocock. We now have greater clarity around the key challenges and opportunities for our business. In 2019, we will remodel our retail offer while building a digitally-led international business underpinned by a sustainable approach as part of our nobody-harmed ambition. He added, with a rapid expansion underway in the US, building on profitable foundations and the acquisition of Mr Green nearing completion, we look forward to making further progress this year with profits in the UK retail estate fading and the group counting the cost of enhanced due diligence online. William Hill is doubling down on international expansion. The acquisition of online gaming specialist Mr Green will bolster European revenues and bring much-needed online diversification while the opportunity in the US is significant. Despite looking good on paper, the strategy comes with risk attached. There are plenty of European competitors fighting for a foothold in the US. And as the UK government's FOBT restrictions proved, extra regulation is a constant worry. Still, with the shares trading close to 50% below what they were last April... The expected yield has been pushed up to 5.8%. That could interest value-seeking investors. Philip Pocock at no time mentioned the additional profits attained by William Hill through some idiot betting at SP on the 340 and NAS trying to arb when he had no idea what the back price he was getting was. What's coming up this weekend? Um, the Premiership is back to a full schedule. But I haven't brought it up. Where is it? Yeah. Oh, wow, we've got a couple of Friday night games. Cardiff-Watford and West Ham versus Fulham. No idea why that's happening. They really spread the game around. There's only four on Saturday. The game of the weekend will be Newcastle-Huddersfield, 3 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Man United-Liverpool, actually, should be quite tasty on Sunday. And then it's um full midweek schedule next week on Tuesday and Wednesday um, as we've had the first round of uh, Champions League and Europa. Um, so they're taking a break next week. Newcastle face Burnley Tuesday night at 8pm. Um and Chelsea Spurs Wednesday at 8pm. Now that one I'm going to be abroad for. So I'll be here for the Tuesday, but I'm going to miss the miss the Wednesday games. And the Six Nations is also back. Where is the Six Nations? This is a bit of a shambles towards the end of this bashcast. I didn't, should have set all of this up, but I haven't. Uh, France and Scotland now. Scotland are, well, 3.4. Actually surprised they're that low. And Wales play England. Six Nations has been turned on its head with England. Um, Ireland were such short favourites for it that now you can get 20 on the exchange where England are 
you know, one to four, one to three on the exchange, hundred to one for Scotland if you want them. I don't want them at that though. There was something else going on this weekend. I can't remember what it was. Oh, I think we were just talking Cheltenham. I put a video up about, um, you know, there was there was an awful blog written by Mister. I'm not going to mention who it was. He's just trying his best, but it was just. Rolling out exactly the same thing over and over again. Oh, Cheltenham's coming around the corner. You can make money by getting free bets and extra places. Well, it's not as simple as that. I mean, yes, in 2012, 2013, there were one to four place terms on like three extra places and so you could literally just lay the win and lay the place and cover the field and not risk a penny and then if you want to go back five ten years before then you were looking at 500 pound reloads from bookmakers just to get involved and start betting at Cheltenham and there was money back if um, your horse was second there was money back if your horse didn't even win which is actually something the Sky are still continuing but good luck if you've got a Sky account still it's not the account of a professional better because it's not sustainable to keep a Sky account running for the long term so I would argue that you know, if you're a cheeky monkey and you can somehow source three dozen accounts, then you might just get enough to have some fun with Sky's money back if your horse doesn't win on the first race of the day. But where are the rest of these money back offers going to come from or these um, extra places which are harder and harder? The extra places are all going to be one to five odds. You might get two or three extra places, but the race composition and profile is going to be all important to determining whether it's going to be worth it or not. And then on top of that, I don't think anyone's going to be like money back if second anymore. These free bet offers, but they're just... The bookmakers aren't interested in giving concessionary value away to risk-free match betters anymore. There's too many of them. They took too much money in previous years. It's not there. There will be value. It's just going to be in a different place, basically. Let me bring up the analysis I did earlier. But just this sort of reiteration that Cheltenham is a risk-free match better's paradise. I don't think it is going to be this year. I really don't think. I think it's going to be concessionary value for those that are willing to risk a little bit of money. I mean, I might be wrong, but I would be surprised if I am. There it is. So, I wouldn't go into it assuming that, you know, if you just get all your accounts set up and then start backing and laying and backing and laying equals profit. There was a day when that was true, but I don't think it is anymore. I think it's going to be more one to five places where you're trying to determine the value, but you are still losing money, whether you're hedging or just value betting them. And then there's going to be things like distance bets. You know, how much is the horse going to win by? So the average length that a horse wins at Cheltenham is just over three lengths, but that will change depending on the composition of the race. Of course, a very short-priced favourite is going to be more likely to win by more lengths. But if the bookmakers say all races to be won in a day by one length or more, 
Well, the odds of one race being one length or more is 1.35. But if you look back in the last 27 festival days, only one time has all races in the day been won by one length or more. We want odds of at least six to one, perhaps better, and things like that. It's these kind of analysis. Maybe it's going to be favourite performance. You get 25 points for first, 15 points for second, 10 points for third kind of thing. It's going to be these kind of bets where additional value is going to be found. Don't get me wrong, it's still going to be possible to be looking at the extra places, but they're going to be harder. I think um, dutching those races, or even perhaps getting on the horses and laying the win and not the place is going to be, you know, a slightly more entertaining prospect than trying to lay both the win and the place. And seeing where you get with that. Of course, Bet365, they normally come out with something insane like, you know, bet £125 each way and you'll get £125 of that back. But that's under the assumption that you can hold on to a Bet365, and that's a lot easier said than done. So I want to look at this with much more of a broad brushstroke. I want to assume that we can't do things like hold on to Sky Bets and hold on to Bet365s. Try and figure out how to make money a little bit more laterally. I could be completely wrong and we get to the day and everything's one to four odds, extra places and money back of second and money back of your bet loses. And if that's what it is and I'm wrong and I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. But um, there's nothing wrong with trying to be prepared. That's what I'm trying to do. Whatever it is that you're betting on the next week, do make sure it's that. This is Tom, signing out. This is Big. Big.